Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 374 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, part of our Location and the Writer series, Amanda Mitchison visits Coleridge's cottage in Nether Stowey, the place where he wrote some of his greatest poems. Then, Julia Crouch takes a promenade on Brighton Beach, the inspiration for her first novel and for other famous neighbours. First, here's Amanda Mitchison on Coleridge's Cottage. Coleridge's Cottage, where the poet lived for three years in his mid-twenties, is a small house in the village of Netherstowey, set in the Quantock Hills of Somerset. It was here that Coleridge wrote his very greatest works, Kublai Khan, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner and Christabel all date back to this period. It was also a time of creative flowering for his close friend and collaborator, William Wordsworth. Together they wrote the Lyrical Ballads, an anthology which ushered in the Romantic period and changed the course of English poetry forever. So Coleridge's Cottage has its place in the history of English letters and the National Trust who have owned the house for over a hundred years, have carefully curated the visitor experience. Out the front, facing onto the street, are some neat wooden tubs filled with fuchsias. Inside, laid bare by renovations in 2011, there is the fireplace where Coleridge wrote Frost at Midnight while his dear baby son Hartley slept at his feet. This room, like all the rooms, is small, bare and not very comfortable by modern standards. We see straw-seated upright chairs, joint stools, a few wooden toys, some cute little leather bellows. Out the back lies a pretty garden with blue and white agapanthus, poppies, herbs, hollyhock. There is also a neat patch overseen by some statuesque model geese, an illusion no doubt, to the fact that the Coleridge's kept real geese as well as hens and pigs. Written in large letters on the garden wall is a quotation from Coleridge dating back to the early optimistic days of his stay in the village. He stated dreamily, I raise potatoes and all manner of vegetables, have an orchard and shall raise corn with the spade enough for my family. Meanwhile, at a specially reconstructed bower, you can sit down, surrounded by jasmine blossom, press a button and listen to a recital of Coleridge's great poem, This Lime Tree Bower My Prison. Finally, before you leave the cottage, you can visit the inevitable National Trust on-site shop and partake of a poet's lunch, cheese scone, cheese and chutney in the tea room. If that doesn't take your fancy, there is always the Ancient Mariner pub opposite. Wi-Fi, flat screens, Tuesday chef's pie night, Wednesday curry and a drink. On its website, the National Trust claims that the cottage has been recreated as though Coleridge and his young family had just stepped out the door. Of course that isn't quite true. When Coleridge and his wife Sarah and their three-month-old son Hartley arrived on the last day of 1796, the house was semi-derelict. It was tiny. The building has since been extended out the back, with dark little casement windows, which are now replaced by lighter sashes, and low ceilings. 
the roof has subsequently been raised. The interior was very damp then, draughty, almost totally lacking in furniture and infested with mice. The thatch, nowadays there's a sturdy slate roof, was half rotten. Upstairs, there were three tiny bedrooms, one of which was inhabited by Coleridge's unstable young protégé, Charles Lloyd, who suffered violent epileptic fits and eventually had to be dispatched to a sanatorium in Lichfield. But it was, of course, all grist to the mill. Lloyd's delirious ravings are thought to have inspired the madder parts of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. The cottage then must have really been a wretched place to bring up small children. Downstairs were two little parlours with fires that smoked and required constant stoking. In the cramped kitchen, Sarah Coleridge and her young maid cooked and dried washing over an open fire. If they needed to use an oven, they had to step over the open gutter at the front door and take their dishes to the baker's shop over the road where the ancient mariner pub now stands. This road was dusty in summer and in the winter Coleridge described it as an impassable hogsty, a slough of despond. Nearby was the poor house where in the evening the inmates fought and argued. Coleridge joked that the street was vocal with the poor house nightingales. As for the garden, Coleridge's enthusiasm predictably waned. The vegetable patch was abandoned and he was soon applying his democratic principles to horticulture. It was, he quipped, unfair on the weeds to prejudice the soil towards roses and strawberries. It is obvious and understandable why the National Trust have glossified Coleridge's cottage. They couldn't help but improve it. And it's also true that Coleridge and his wife would have far preferred this modern sanitised version. They'd have loved a bit of light and dryness and the extension out the back and the plumbing and the absence of mice. Who would want to keep noisy, aggressive geese when ornamental ones are available? And Coleridge, with his gargantuan appetites, would definitely have been a man for a pie at the Mariners. It's also easy to see why Coleridge doesn't seem to have been at home much in his hellish, nappy-filled cottage. When he wasn't out on his extremely long walks or on his trips away, he would escape out the back door of the cottage and through his overgrown garden to a little gate that led into the orchard and tannery of his great friend and supporter, Thomas Poole. Here the poet would sit outside in the stone arbour, though he might have had to hold his nose, for Poole's tannery pits were nearby. Or else Coleridge would climb a metal staircase that led up to Poole's vaulted library, which had a large fireplace and was well furnished with books. Tom Poole was most generous to Coleridge, and it's on his account that the young family settled in Netherstowey in the first place. Coleridge had wanted to escape from his highly charged life in Bristol, where he had quarrelled with Robert Southey and his newspaper had had to close. He was besieged with deadlines and debt. He needed a break, a rural retreat where he could have peace and tranquillity and concentrate on his poetry. Coleridge also liked the idea of bringing up his little son Hartley in close proximity to nature. As he wrote, Thou, my babe, shall wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores beneath crags of ancient mountain. 
The countryside around Nether Stowey offered Coleridge all of these earthly delights. The Quantocks were then even more wild and tucked away than they are today. He could walk up into the hills and surrender his whole spirit to nature. He could listen to the nightingales in the steep wooded coombs, lie in moonlight fields, admire the golden corn and the wide skies. There was the nearby beach at Kilve, which looked out over the Bristol Channel to the blue hills of Wales. Better still, he had the inspiring company of Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy, who were living nearby. They walked the Quantocks with Coleridge and talked poetry, revolution, nature, metaphysics. Meanwhile, poor Sarah, pregnant or nursing her babies, stayed at home. But if William Wordsworth was Coleridge's inspiring intellectual companion, it was Tom Poole that was his mainstay and his enabler. He arranged an honorarium for the poet. He gave moral support and steady advice, lent Coleridge books and gave him the use of his garden and library, introduced him to the local gentry and also probably to some of the working people who were later to feature as Wordsworthian bit parts in the lyrical ballads. Later, when Coleridge sailed off to Germany with the Wordsworths, Poole helped Sarah Coleridge and her two small children. It's worth noting that Poole also cared for many other people too. He funded and built the local school, set up a bank and a woman's friendly society and gave food to the poor. Today he is far better remembered in Nether Stowey than his brilliant friend Coleridge. And in recognition of Poole's philanthropy, Poole House, on the main street of Netherstowey, has been awarded a blue plaque of its own, though the plates are still to be put up. The present owners of Poole House very kindly showed me their back garden, where the old tannery pits have been filled in and grassed over, and the orchard is now a magnificent garden, dotted with large trees, including a huge prolific walnut tree and a home oak. The real lime tree bower of Coleridge's poem was situated here, but it's long gone. The gap in the wall where Poole put in a little gate for Coleridge has been filled in and the metal staircase up to the library has been demolished. But Coleridge's refuge, the library, is still there. It's a tastefully painted home office now, but it still retains its lumpy, lath and plaster vaulted ceiling, and there's even the little hook that supported the chandelier. Again, like so many Georgian interiors, it's surprisingly small. Despite marital frictions, the three years that Coleridge spent at Netherstowey were a high point in his life and as I said earlier, his most poetically inspired and productive period. Before the Stowey years, he was too admired in journalism, which, possibly more than Cyril Connolly's pram in the hall, is often the sombre enemy of good art. Afterwards, when he returned from Germany and his marriage finally collapsed, his life became too unbearably chaotic. Poole, who remained a devoted, though clear-eyed friend, tried to get him to come back to the Quantocks, but Coleridge was taken up with the idea of following the Wordsworths up to the Lake District. And London beckoned too, of course. In the decades that followed, without gruff old Poole at the end of the garden steering his ship through its many storms, Coleridge became fatally dispersed. There were just too many other distracting pressures, 
Too many money troubles, too many problems with his bowels, his families, his friends, including and especially Wordsworth. Too many late nights quaffing flip, too much German philosophy and far, far too much laudanum. That was Amanda Mitchison. Next, here's Julia Crouch on Brighton Beach. The road is a dividing line. Even though I've lived here in Brighton for over 20 years, I still marvel as I stand on the piss-stained, gum-pocked Kemptown pavement and face the sea. Behind me, the traffic roars and rumbles, belching VW campers, turquoise taxis doing battle with artificial fruit-scented Ubers, tinny Deliveroo mopeds, souped-up boy racers in flash-harry Audi TTs with personalised number plates. And behind all this, the sweaty, belchy city where, as Julie Birchall tells us that John Osborne said, Brighton stories are often formed like this on gossip and salaciousness, you can smell the semen in the air. All life is there, farting and fucking and dancing and kissing and weeping and laughing and living and dying. It bubbles like sourdough in the grand white seafront houses that have been carved over the years into variously bohemian and squalid dwellings. It jostles up the hill in multicoloured, bijou, shabby cottages towards my own manor of Hanover. It stews in brutal municipal tower blocks originally built to rehouse slummer inhabitants displaced by the Luftwaffe, but which now, thanks to magnificent coastal views, right to buy, the DFLs down from London's, don't you know, command quite a sum to purchase. But, in front of me, beyond the pebbles and the day-trippers and the locals taking a dip, whatever the weather, there is nothing. This is the city, 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 ah, thing that you get with Brighton. I walk or run here most days, using the space and the air to spin my thoughts. I carefully make my way down one of the few evil-smelling stone stairways still not fenced off for safety reasons. Passing the scandalously decayed Madeira terraces, I think of Victorian couples strolling hand in hand, admiring the view. Today, inaccessible to all but the most determined miscreants, they're littered with broken glass, stained mattresses and excrement. At sea level, I cross the newly traffic-free Madeira Drive, taking care not to be mown down by roller skaters and wobbling newbie cyclists on pale green social bicycles. Like a pimple popped from the city, I cross a Volks railway track, then crunch across the pebbles. Free, by design, of nickable valuables, I chuck down my towel, throw off my clothes to reveal my distinctly unglamorous swimsuit, and pull on my swimming shoes and prescription goggles. I stumble into the water, swim a few strokes until I am out of my depth, then turn back and look at it all. A hovering gull thinks for a moment I am something interesting. To my left, the pier music thumps, but this great stretch of heaving water neutralises the sound to a faint pulse. The sky is sunny and clear. Suspended chalk particles calmly reflect the blue above me as a milky version of turquoise, and I can see the seabed beyond my feet. On stormy days, however, the sea is slate black, and everything is hidden. If the city in front of me is the surface of the person, here, in the water, at its edge, 
is where the deeper self begins. It is this junction, this metaphorical complexity, that draws me here for fictional exploration. The sea generally fascinates me. A deal of my third novel, Tarnished, is set in Tankerton, where the mile-long finger of the street disappears at high tide like sunken secrets. My fourth book, The Long Fall, starts with a young Greek fisherman witnessing a murder as he returns to the south coast of Icaria in his boat. But the sea in Brighton, particularly, is my first love for setting. It was the breeding ground for the toxic female friendship in my first novel, Cuckoo, and the setting for maternal sacrifice and self-preservation in my current and seventh work in progress, Pelican. All the birds for titles, except, so far, the damn seagull. They're not forgotten, though, as here in Cuckoo. Look at the birds, Anna said. Seagulls, they're sort of rats with wings, said Rose. Anna thought about this. But they haven't got those horrid tails. True, but they eat absolutely anything. And they attack people. I once read about a man who was killed by a seagull in Rottingdean. At about the same time as I was working on Cuckoo, fellow Brighton resident Nick Cave must have been writing The Death of Bunny Munro, a book which, if you really want to get the guts of the underbelly of my hometown, I strongly recommend you read. Because on page 60 of the Kindle edition, there's this. He read in the Argus only recently that a seagull attacked an old age pensioner in Hove. The man had a heart attack and died. And if his wife hadn't chased it away, it would have definitely pecked the old man's eyes out and probably his guts as well. Relocated to the other end of town, certainly. But the same, sadly true story. The great Prince of Darkness was always bound to tell it with more blood and gore than me, although, spoiler alert, in the end, Cuckoo does turn out to have its fair share of both. My two main characters, Rose and Polly, grow up together in the Kemp Town alleys leading from the beach to the main shopping drag that is St James's Street. Our city by the sea has undergone a, some say, regrettable degree of gentrification since when I had my two protagonists living there in the 1980s, but... For our delight, St James's Street retains some of the more Brighton Rock seedy elements. For example, there are still more sex shops than on your average high street. And, if you try hard enough, you can still get your pocket picked by a heroin addict. Rose and Polly are two women who never should have met. And their characters and background are extremes of what I see as quintessentially Brighton. Rose comes from the old town. Her straight-laced parents run a grim boarding house of the kind that Airbnb put right out of existence and she grows up an unloved only child dressed in brown charity shop clothes. But, like the city with its punctuating shoreline, there is an edge of wildness in her. Strands of her unwashed hair tangle in the wind as she walks to school along the shingle. Meeting Polly at the age of eight galvanises these untamed elements. This sets her on the path that will eventually lead to an adult Rose whose toast catalogue presentation masks a seething mess of bad behaviour, loss and secrets. Like the sea where I tread water, like the city in front of me, all the darkness lies beneath the glittering surface. Polly, on the other hand, is the true offspring of Brighton Bohemia. Until her ex-model mother's invasive cancer brings her to a standstill, Polly is dragged through a nomadic, hideous, kinky childhood. 
The pair take refuge in a tiny rented flat off the seafront, crowded in by Moroccan rugs, fabulous clothes and a constant marijuana fug. From an early age, brilliant, damaged Polly is her mother's carer, but she's also a fighter and a survivor and will do anything to be on top. Rose is like her dolly, to mould and shape into the kind of sister-stroke friend she feels she lacks. And the seafront is the stage for most of the tests she sets for her. When Rose returns to Brighton in the final act of the novel, she is 36 and has her two daughters, Anna, six, and baby Flossie with her. The taxi driver at Brighton Station won't take them as well as Polly and her two sons, so she says she will walk, keen to show Anna key locations from her childhood. What she doesn't realise is that she is heading towards Polly's carefully stage-managed unveiling of the secret Rose had hoped she would take to the grave. As she walks down Queen's Road towards the sea, which hangs like a great grey blanket between the buildings in front of them and onto the beach, she encounters jarring transformations. Where she remembered scrappy clubs among decaying fishermen's arches, deep pocketed pubs and pissy little alcoves, there were now coffee bars on neat terraces that edged onto the shingle. Beautiful glass floor tiles pointed the way along the new curving granite-set seafront walkway. There were a couple of showers, a kayak rental shop, the odd sculpture. It all looked so un-English to Rose's eye. It's worth noting at this point that I started writing Cuckoo in 2008, when the city still wore the benefit of new labour investment. Now, after a decade or so of austerity, it has reverted to a state much more in chime with Rose's memories. As she and her girls approach the pier, everything looks shabbier and more familiar. They take a walk out along it, and the metaphorical possibilities of the setting combine with her memories. Out they went, beyond the phallic helter-skelter, the screaming dodgems, and an alarming lever ride that promised to drop its shrieking occupants several hundred feet into the boiling sea beneath. "'You can see the water whirling underneath you,' she said to Anna." They stood on the boardwalk and looked down between the gaps. You think you're on solid ground, but you're not. Any minute, and the whole lot could collapse, and we'd be in the water. Rose thought she could see the ghost of herself down there, covered up by some boy or other, his spotty, bare backside going up and down, hammering into her. She shuddered. I'm currently adapting Cuckoo for a TV series, and the sea and seafront that informed my thinking and dreaming about the novel are coming right to the fore. Even though the main setting is a landlocked village just outside Bath, the sound and sight of the sea is ever-present for Rose and Polly. Their current adult war is played out against the background of those two little girls standing on a wind-blasted shore, shouting swear words into the heaving blue-grey waves, the city and all its temptations and terrors behind them like it is for me today, now standing here on the pebbles, shivering out of the water among the cuttlefish bones and sea-scoured plastic. That was Julia Crouch. You can find out more about Amanda Mitchison and Julia Crouch on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 374, which was recorded and produced by Yasser Amir. Coming up in episode 375, Catherine O'Flynn speaks with Bethan Roberts about childhood sleuthing, the difference between writing adult and children's fiction, and her inner self that never grew up.
We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.